Anybody make any New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody? Just raise your hand if you made one. Okay, I made none. <laughs> that way, I never get disappointed. But for you guys, I will pray for you because I think that's very brave. So... Um, I stole this logo from the internet and then put our name on it. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. But we are starting a new series uh, today, first day of the new year. We're going through Ephesians. What a lot of people have called like the crown jewel of the New Testament, I wasn't aware of this, but more lives have been changed by reading Ephesians than you would ever guess. People just taking it out and reading. It's only short six chapters. You can probably read it in 15, 20 minutes tops. And uh, some people have literally changed the course of their lives by studying Ephesians. And I read a few of their biographies while I was getting ready for this sermon. I'm not going to tell you those stories, but it's just amazing to me that that can actually happen. And it just brought Ephesians in focus for me even more so that this is great for scum of the earth because uh, largely about our identity. You know, we're very often people who like to do things for God. But Ephesians is about being people for God. And I kind of like that. So um, a lot of you probably have no idea where Ephesus is, but uh, the next slide will show you that uh, over on the uh, side of uh, Asia Minor there, Ephesus, what is present-day Turkey, that's where uh, the Ephesians were. Now, just so you know, this letter probably wasn't written specifically to that one city's church. It was actually a circular letter, we think, because there's very little personal stuff in it. It was meant to be circulated around that whole Asia Minor area. So Galatia, Colossae, Laodicea is in there. Uh, all these places are in there. And they would have moved it around. And then, because um, we have scribal fragments uh, where you know, they put the, uh, the name of the church in the blank, basically, say, this is the Apostle Paul writing to this church or this church. So the Ephesians obviously did a better job of saving their copy than anybody else. So that's why it's called the Ephesians. Um, Ephesus was probably the most important city between Rome uh, and Antioch. So, so that's great. If you want to read about Paul's time in Ephesus and the planting of the church, you can go back to Acts 19 and 20. We just got done studying Acts uh, last year. So if you want to go back, you can read that and you can find out more about that. I think that Ephesians may be the most contemporary book in the New Testament. Maybe in the whole Bible. In other words, when you read it, you're going, hmm, this makes sense to me. A 21st century person living in the USA. There's not a big, giant gulf between what Paul's dealing with and talking about to the Ephesians and what you and I are dealing with today in Denver. Which 
I, I just think it's crazy because sometimes, you know, it's just so massive the gulf between what was going on back in Bible times and what's going on today. But not with Ephesians. So it's about us. It describes our human condition. It describes our predicament, our sin, our delusion. But it much more describes God reaching out to create a people for Himself, a community, and transform them into the church. Which I think is what He's been doing here at Scum for some time. So these are some questions that I think our study of Ephesians may answer. Number one, we call ourselves Scum of the Earth. Who are we, really? Is it, is, it, is it important to belong to a church? Because, you know, a lot of folks don't belong to churches. They just stay home and listen to podcasts. And maybe they go to coffee with Christians they know. Why should we commit to a church? Why is a body of believers so important? Ephesians helps answer that question. You know, <clears throat> people have a problem with our name, Scum of the Earth. Little old ladies back 18 years ago especially had a problem. Well, God doesn't see you as scum of the earth. Why would you call yourselves that? Well, you know, that's true. Thankfully, God does not see us as scum of the earth. It's the world that sees us as scum of the earth, which is where we got our name. We're borrowing from the Apostle Paul again in Corinthians, where he, 1 Corinthians, where he says that's how the world views the apostles, as scum of the earth. But God obviously sees us much differently. And we're going to find out about that in Ephesians. God saved us, basically, when we weren't just merely sick or wounded, spiritually speaking. But according to the Bible, God saved us when we were spiritually dead. We were gone. We were out for the count. We would never follow God. We had turned our backs. We had rebelled. And God has demonstrated the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, we find out in Ephesians. Jesus suffered at our place in order to make everything new with our relationship with God. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but uh, especially nowadays when you go on social media, when you turn on the television, especially the late-night comics, our world is awash with cynicism, with apathy, with selfishness, with hypocrisy. And yet, Ephesians sends out a message of God's boundless love for all of us idiots, for the scum of the earth. That's what Ephesians does. It's got this giant kind of sweeping portrayal of the way the gospel is uniting people from really diverse and different backgrounds. Where you get people who used to be nothing. And you get people who are used to be great in society's eyes. And somehow they come together in the same place and they become brothers and sisters in a church. I remember, and I've said this before, but I never forget the time when one of the former governors of the state of Colorado was visiting Scum of the Earth Church because his son wanted to come. And he was standing right in front of this crusty kid who barely bathed. And to watch them turn around and greet each other and chat. I was thinking, wow, 
That is the kind of community that I want to belong to, where that thing can happen. And it's not scum of the earth so much. It's God's community. It's God's church. That's where that happens. There's a radical inclusiveness going on in the church of Jesus. And it happens between Jews and non-Jews, too. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Jews tend to be fairly off to themselves. They are a community. It's kind of amazing that after all these thousands and thousands of years that the Jews are still an identifiable people group who didn't have their own country for millennia. And yet, we're going to find out in the Ephesian letter that Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, were able to come together and worship the same God in the same way. Okay, second question that I think it will answer. How are we part of a larger cosmic story that God is writing for angels and demons. Maybe you thought we were the big deal. We were the only deal. We are a big deal. Jesus came and died for us. But we aren't the only deal. God has myriad angels and demons that He created someplace, sometime before us. And He's still working with them, we find out in Ephesians. And that there's this giant kind of cosmic historical play that is underway and that you and I have a part in it. That somehow God is using what happens in the church and to the people that He's gathering for His own to teach something to the heavenly realms. In the fullness of time, there's a climax of all that God has been doing in history that pinnacles with Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul says that everything is going to be united in heaven and on earth. God says everything's going to be summed up. Everything is going to be drawn together. Humans, angels, demons, the earth, the heavens, the seas, the universe, everything is coming together in this giant plan that he's got. And then that what what happened in that little hill? outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, is the pinnacle. It's the climax of God's plan. And we're in it. Ephesians 3.10 says that His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms in accordance with His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That'll be interesting. Question number three. How different are we as a church supposed to be from everybody else who doesn't belong to a Christian church? And where do we get the power to change? Well, let's start with husbands and wives. You guys know how difficult it is to be married in contemporary society, it seems like everything is working against you. And yet, in Ephesians, we're going to find out some things about husbands and wives and how they're supposed to live out this life together. 
to bring glory and praise to God. And then we're going to move on to parents and children. So if you've got children and they're in the Sunday school right now, Ephesians has something to say to you. Questions that you have are going to be answered right around chapter 5. Maybe not all of them, but we'll have a great start heading in that direction. Employers and employees. How are you supposed to work on a day-to-day basis? Because it talks about masters and slaves. Now, thank God, I don't think anybody here has a slave or has a master. But, you know, slavery is alive and well in the world. Maybe not here, but in other parts of the world, it's still going on. And the Bible has something to say to try and make that as good of a situation as it possibly can be without endorsing it. But let's go deeper. Because really the problem is down in here in our hearts, isn't it? We're going to go all the way down to pride versus humility, which I know nobody here struggles with except for me. We're going to be talking about lying versus telling the truth. We're going to talk about being angry versus being patient. Anybody here ever pray for patience? That's when you get angry. Did you ever notice that? It's kind of weird. We're going to talk about bitterness as opposed to forgiveness. How do you live your life not being bitter about all the crap that's been done to you and done to people you care about? How do you do that? Because, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? You don't want to be that bitter person. You want to learn how to forgive. It's going to be about fighting versus reconciliation. Sometimes you've got to fight the good fight. But then, how do you reconcile once you've done that? Question number four. How do we survive and win a spiritual war? Ephesians chapter 6, the last chapter, is probably the clearest teaching about the fundamental struggle that every one of you here is in, whether you believe it or not. As Brian Pell pointed out last week, people are not the enemy. And if people are not the enemy, then where does all this junk come from? Who is the enemy? Well, we have an enemy who's unseen. Ephesians tells us how to stand firm in the face of an onslaught from the darkness that wants to destroy us, that wants to destroy our relationships, that wants to destroy the church, that wants to destroy, if it could, God. Ain't going to happen because we have a battle plan. We have defensive and offensive armor and weapons. We're going to learn about that at the end of the book. 
Because you know, around the world today, people experience spiritual warfare. Now, we're experiencing it more and more here in the U.S. You know, as we get more pagan as a society, as people start believing more and more in um, powers that are beyond the senses. I mean, that's been going on for a long time in the third world. And they're familiar with spiritual warfare. But we're becoming more and more familiar with it here all the time. You've been around scum of the earth. I mean, you know we've dealt with it. There's no accident that we have prayer nights on a monthly basis because we know we're involved in a battle. Bottom line, Ephesians may be one of the most influential documents ever written. If you read it receptively, if you open yourself up, it'll be like a bombshell going off in your life. I really encourage you guys to read Ephesians all the way through. Maybe just once a week. It won't take long until you finally kind of get the idea of what's going on. And we'll study it more closely. We're going to look at our identity in the whole thing, who we are, the power that God's Spirit gives us for living and to be who we are and not who we used to be. It shows who we are without Christ. Ephesians is going to show us who we can be with Christ. And Ephesians is one of the most important books for understanding the church. Like, we're here. What, what's this all about anyway? In an age when more and more Christians are ditching the church, if you stick with it, I think we're going to find out why the church is such a big deal to God. I mean, seriously, it is still God's number one vehicle for getting stuff done on the earth. The church is. As imperfect as we are. All right. A um, little background here about how we start off. Um, we're going to start off this letter just like Paul starts off all his letters. It's going to be a greeting. Um, letters in the ancient world follow a set form, kind of like we do now. You know, we used to have letter writing, dear so-and-so, and then at the bottom you would write, sincerely, so-and-so, right? An email, it's actually a little more like it used to be. In the ancient world, at the top, we have uh, who the email is from, and then there's a line to whom the email is being sent. It might be several people. And there's a subject, right, line. And it's all at the beginning. And then you start your letter. So our email actually is more like the form of this letter than those old written letters were that we did in America. There was a greeting and a prayer and a wish for health normally. And this is what, even if you weren't a Christian, if you're just writing somebody, you would just, you know, you would greet them. You would say who you are, who you're writing to. And there was usually a, a wish for health or something. And then the body of the letter and then finally the closing. Now, now Christian writers, the Apostle Paul in particular, took this form and he kind of changed it. He Christianized it. All right? He made it work for the church for himself, for his new life in Christ. 
And so you're going to see that, that he's taken this and he's redone the greeting to make it more Christian. It's kind of like uh, my friends who used to take popular songs on the radio and then put Christian words to them just for fun. I'm thinking a lot of it was hokey, you know. But they weren't far off from what Christians have done for a couple thousand years. And so if Paul's relationship with Christ changed his letters and the way he wrote them, I'm wondering, how can we show the reality of Christ in our lives? Like, do you think that maybe it might affect the way that we speak to people? I mean, do you think if you're a Christian and you're following Jesus, that it may Christianize the way you talk to people? I mean, I would think you would say F you a lot less to people once you've been following Jesus for a while. And I don't mean to do this just to appear pious. I don't mean that at all. But I mean actual transformation because of your relationship with Jesus. Do you think maybe your relationship with Christ would change your music if you're a musician? I think everybody here who's a musician knows what I'm talking about. It has changed. Not only the music you listen to, but the music you write yourself. It just changes things. I mean, everybody doesn't have to write about Jesus in the great by and by, but, you know, some musicians write about the light, and then some musicians write about what they see because of the light. It changes things. Our relationship with Christ will change our deepest relationships. My relationship with Jesus changed who I was going to marry. I started looking for different kinds of women after I became a Christian than before. Does that sound odd to you? It really isn't. I was looking much deeper into a person's soul than I was before, when I wasn't a Christian. Our relationship with Christ will change our vocations and our vocational goals. It certainly changed mine. I didn't expect to be a pastor at all. It'll change the way we work. It'll change the way we play. A relationship to Christ changes everything. And it certainly changes the way that Paul writes his letters. So, we're going to go over a whole two verses tonight. So let's go. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. I'll read the whole thing. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back. So I want to talk about just that first phrase. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What the heck is an apostle? I mean, you've heard apostle, pastor, teacher, evangelist. You know, you've heard all those kinds of things before, right? What is an apostle? Well, let me tell you. Number one, apostle was someone who had seen the risen Christ. 
That was one of the requirements. You had to see Jesus risen in bodily form to be one of the big apostles back during this time. Paul obviously was not around as a follower of Jesus. He was uh, not a follower of Jesus, but Jesus did appear to him later on. Number two, an apostle is someone who's sent out by the church with some kind of missionary task. And Paul was certainly sent on missionary journeys by the church. He would go with Barnabas. He would go with Silas. He would go with Luke. He would go with other people. And they would go and they would do, you know, mission trip number one, number two, number three, whatever. So Paul certainly was sent. Or more broadly, it's anybody who functioned as a representative of God. An apostle is kind of like an envoy, kind of like a uh, diplomat from heaven, so to speak. Someone who would represent the Lord Jesus in any given locale. So Paul's saying, basically, I have authority to write you this letter. I have authority to write you this letter and for you to listen. And so I want you to listen, not based on the fact that I'm Paul, but on the fact that I've been made an apostle. It's not just like suggestions. This is a much bigger deal than just a suggestion. This is a letter from Paul's authority as an apostle. For those of you who don't remember Paul's background, let's go to the next slide. We'll go back to uh, what he said in 1 Timothy. He says this to his understudy, Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor, and he flipped. We know that story from Acts. If you don't know the story, go back and listen to it on the podcasts. Okay, next phrase. By the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You know, this isn't like um, somebody who says, I just don't know God's will for my life. I'm trying to find God's will for my life. Can we sit down and talk about what God's will for my life might be? This isn't that. The point here is that Paul's an apostle because God wanted him to be. That's it. He was born for that purpose. God had set him aside from before he was born to be an apostle. 
It was God's will. It was nothing Paul did. As a matter of fact, Paul was going in the opposite direction. He was like one of those Pharisees that Jesus always got in arguments with. That was Paul. Paul wasn't like, you know, the guy who was adulterous. Or he wasn't like the guy who was greedy and loved his money. No. Jesus seemed to have a lot of compassion and mercy for those people. Paul was the guy who was trying to kill Jesus. That's who he was. And since he couldn't kill Jesus because Jesus had already resurrected, Paul was trying to kill his followers, the church, us guys. Paul did not volunteer as an apostle. Paul's choices took second place. Now, just as Paul was appointed to be an apostle, just want you to know, God's got an appointment for you. You don't get out of this. God's got one for you. God's, we're talking about God's big will, capital W will. There's a reason that you were born. That God knew before you were born what he wanted you to be. And it may not be an apostle, it may not be a pastor, it may not be an evangelist, it may not be a teacher. That doesn't matter. He's got something else just as important to his plan as that. I don't think that ecclesiastical offices are the most important offices. I frankly think that being a plumber in the house of God is just as important as being an apostle. I don't think God's going to treat them any differently in terms of well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to tell you how many times at my house I would much rather have a plumber there helping me out than someone teaching me a Bible lesson. I mean, it's just... Sometimes plumbers are more important. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, King David said. All right, next line. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful. Now, a lot of times this is translated to God's saints, but the word saint kind of has gotten corrupted, right? We think of saints as people with halos. i got to tell you, this is hilarious. Mary and I are in England doing scum of the earth stuff in Scotland, whatever. And Mary is like dead asleep and starts talking in her sleep. It's two in the morning. She says, Is my halo causing interference for you? <laughs> and I... <laughs> I thought, i got to play along with this, right? So I said, I didn't know that halos caused interference. And Mary, still asleep, says, oh, yes, they do, because of their metallic properties. <laughs> but we normally think of, of, uh, of halos as those things that depict the saint. You know, there's this light that kind of emanates, an aura or whatever. It's an artist's trick to let you know this person is set apart, this person is special. But see, Paul uses the holy ones, which actually means set apart. Holy ones means 
the people in the church at Ephesus, you guys are set apart. You're holy. Holy means you're set apart for a special purpose. That God has set you apart to do something. To be something. That's what saint means. That's what holy ones mean. It wasn't about the way you lived your life. It's all about God and what He's going to do. So, you know, you could be a mess. You could be a royal mess. And God would still call you holy. Because He set you apart for a special purpose. He set you apart to be a special kind of person. I mean, Paul had no illusions about the sanctity of people's lives. I mean, just read the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament church is a freaking mess. You know, people sleeping with, sleeping with their stepmothers and people cheating each other and not talking to one another and fighting, uh, you know, taking each other to court. I mean, it's a mess. They're having communion, you know. Some people are eating bread and drinking the wine and getting drunk and other people don't even get any communion. I mean, the church was a mess. And yet Paul calls them holy, holy people. The focus is entirely on God's action and the references to God's saving work. The recipients are also called the faithful. And that just means basically someone who trusts. If you trusted Jesus with your life, then you are one of the faithful. It, there's another meaning that means you're really good at doing that stuff. You know, you're, you can be counted on. That's not what he's talking about here. The faithful ones here are the ones who just have said yes to Jesus and stumblingly follow Him. Two steps forward, one step back. That's kind of like my life with Jesus. Oh, I like following Jesus. No, I don't. Yes, I like following Jesus. No, I think I want to do this. Oh, I like following Jesus. No, I'm going to go over here and do this. Oh, no, I really need to follow Jesus because that's one of the health. I'm healthy and happy. No, no, this is so tempting over here. I'm going to go back. That's my life following Jesus. Is that your life following Jesus? You can still be faithful according to this if that's the way your life works. Because it's not about you. It's about God's work in you. And it's interesting, God's holy people in Ephesus. So it's God's holy people who are in a world that is far from perfect. Ancient Ephesus. Ancient Asia Minor. I mean, it's just a mess, spiritually speaking. Sexually speaking. Relationally speaking. Legally speaking. Monetarily speaking, the ancient world was crap. I mean, they were like real rich people. There was the 1% and then there were the 99. There, there might have been a half percent middle class. You talk about poverty. It was rampant. So you've got the gods, holy people in Ephesus, the faithful, and this is plural, right? So the Christian life is not only lived in an imperfect place, it's lived with imperfect people. <laughs> I always tell people who are looking for uh, the perfect church, when you find it, don't join it because you'll wreck it. You're better to throw your lot in with people who know they're messed up than to look for the church that's perfect. Perfect. 
So God's imperfect, set-apart people who are living in an imperfect, fallen world and come together to form an imperfect church. The ecclesia, the called-out ones, the church, the assembly, the koinonia, the fellowship, the communion of people. All right, let's go to the next slide. In Christ Jesus. This is a big deal for Ephesians. We're talking about a union with Christ. Paul's not just saying these people believe in Jesus. He's saying rather they were geographically somehow inside him. The concept of being in Christ is probably one of the, if not the, most important parts of Paul's theology. In the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he uses the phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, or some similar expression, 164 times. If, if I went up to one of you guys and I said... What business are you in? That person would know what I meant, right? If I said, are you in a law? Are you in some kind of medical profession? Then you would immediately know what I meant. If I went up to a young woman and I asked her, are you in love? Then she would tell me about the guy that has captured her heart. But if I go up to a guy and I say, are you in Christ? He'll look at me kind of mystified. Baffled. Maybe even a little bit embarrassed. Are you in Christ? Try that at the checkout line sometime in the supermarket. Uh, Excuse me, but are you in Christ Christians in the New Testament didn't think that way. They, they understood what Paul was saying. It was in Christ they found great victory and triumph and security. It was in Christ they had forgiveness for sins. It was in Him they had hope of heaven. It was in Him they had strength for the journey. It was in Him they had blessings along the way. It was in Him, in Christ, not in themselves, not in the church, Because in us we find weakness and we find mistakes and we find sins. As I said, Paul used the expression in Christ 164 times in his New Testament letters in Christ for forgiveness, in Christ for salvation, in Christ for assurance, in Christ for holiness, in Christ for direction, in Christ for service, in Christ forever. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Let me just say, if you are not in Christ, you are missing out on a whole new existence. 
The old passes away. Behold, new things come. Wonderful things come. Changes come on the inside. Power to change comes on the inside. Ephesians focuses more on union with Christ and on being with Christ than any other letter. 36 times we find in Christ, in the Lord, in Jesus somehow. Paul saw geography as I am not only in Christ, but I'm also in the world. Somehow that we're in two places at the same time. We've got one foot firmly planted in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, and one foot firmly planted in this fallen, sinful, decrepit world. Paul's readers lived in the region around Ephesus, but they also lived in Christ. You live in Denver, Colorado, perhaps, but you also live in Christ. It's a great quote by John MacArthur. Next slide. He says about being in Christ, if we are in Christ Jesus, Christ's riches are our riches. His resources are our resources. His righteousness is our righteousness. His power is our power. His position is our position. Where He is, we are. His privilege is our privilege. What He is, we are. His possession is our possession. What He has, we have. His practice is our practice. What He does, we do. And John MacArthur is not some raving Pentecostal. He's about as... What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's about as opposite as you can be and still be in Christ. It's by the book with John. But John MacArthur has come to this conclusion based on letters like the Ephesians. How the heck do you think you can stand against demons if... God's power through Christ is not your power. This is one of the reasons I don't go to horror movies. Is because they don't tell you that. They make you believe the demons are more powerful than God. Well, they're more powerful than you or the idiots in the movie. But they are not more powerful than Jesus. Because when we are in Christ, His position is our position. His privilege is our privilege. His possession is our possession. His practice is our practice. His power is our power. Then the next slide. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. I don't know if you guys know this, but Paul starts every letter with grace to you. And then he ends every letter with grace be with you. It's almost as if Paul knows that as he's writing the letter, it's an avenue of grace. And that grace is going to come to you through the things that God has revealed to him that are now Holy Scripture. Grace is coming to you through the book of Ephesians. And that once you've read it, once you've studied it, once you've taken it in and made it your own, that grace stays with you. It's amazing. 
You get to live in grace. And peace. I kind of feel like peace is what I need when I don't have the feeling of grace. If you know what I mean. Sometimes, well, let me, let me define terms. Grace is getting the benefit or the present or the gift that you don't deserve. Like, you shouldn't be on the receiving end from God of heaven and everything else. Because you don't deserve it. But God's given it to you freely because of Jesus Christ. It's grace. He's giving it to you. And sometimes my life feels like it's full of grace. Things are just falling into place. You know, it's like Jesus is bringing up the road ahead of me. He's lowering out the high places, bringing up the low places. It's a smooth walk. It's amazing. Doors are opening. It's like being in love. And even though grace, I think, is always there, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's always there. Things are difficult. You can't get along with somebody. And then that's when you need peace. (laughs) And I have that peace when things are difficult. I mean, I've gone through periods of my life where, I mean, I could... I said, you know, Jesus, if I didn't know any better, I would say you don't love me because of the things that are happening in my life. But I have this peace that will not leave, that somehow you're right there with me, even in the middle of these difficulties. When you don't experience grace, or at least when you don't feel like you are, you can definitely have God's peace. Because sometimes your life is skata, as they say in Greek. Skivala, as Paul would say in the New Testament. Um, in American, sometimes you feel like your life is shit. But you can handle it. You can have peace in the middle of it. Because God sends it with Himself. And the last part, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most wonderful parts about being part of God's family is that you get to call God Father. You may have had a rotten father, You may have had no father at all. It doesn't matter. You may have had the best father anybody in this room has. That father pales in comparison to God. And here's the sad thing. God is everybody's creator, but he's not necessarily their father. In John 8.44, Jesus actually says that those who are not part of of his heavenly family have the devil as their father. I know that doesn't play well in Denver at the moment, but that's what Jesus said. We only get to call God Father if we are related to him through Jesus Christ. That only comes through Jesus' sacrifice 
and our trust in that sacrifice. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are together the source of grace and peace. If you want grace and peace, then I would sincerely plead with you to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Let me try and define grace with a couple little stories. I don't know when Billy Graham's going to die, but it's going to be soon. And I'm actually looking forward to all the stories that are going to come out about Billy Graham once he's dead. I know that Billy Graham wants to be with Jesus right now. He's suffering with Parkinson's. Um, he's hanging out. He's probably still praying. His wife's been gone for a number of years. But there's a story I found about Billy. He was driving through a small southern town. He was stopped by a policeman and charged with speeding. Billy Graham, of course, being honest, admitted his guilt, but was told by, by the officer that he would still have to appear in court. That always happens when you're in a foreign town, right? You appear in court. You go, oh, no. The judge asked Guilty or not guilty? When Graham pleaded guilty, the judge replied, that'll be $10, a dollar for every mile you went over the limit. This was a long time ago. Suddenly, the judge recognizes the famous minister. The judge said, you violated the law. The fine must be paid, but, but I'm going to pay it for you. And so the judge took a $10 bill from his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, and then took Graham out and bought him a steak dinner. That, Billy Graham said later, is grace. <laughs> that is how God treats repentant sinners. And I encourage you, I encourage you to trust Jesus and become part of this grand and glorious body he calls his church. We pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, we only went over a couple verses, but we took our time. Help us as we continue praising you and worshiping you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.